How is everybody? <laughs> yeah. Um, I hate wearing those things. I'll be the first one to tell you guys. I do not enjoy it at all. Um, I want to tell you a story, uh, a little bit of a story as to why, um, kind of my reasoning behind why I started making this a requirement to come into our, our weekend services for the time being. Um, I've got a really good friend named David comes to church here, usually comes to the nine. We've been friends for, I guess, about two, two and a half years now. Uh, pretty good friends. Um, I often go over to, he lives out in uh, like the Nolansville, Franklin area, and I'll go out to his house and sit outside and just kind of talk and, and um, we'll hang out for hours at a time. And um, this is irrelevant to the last time we hung out, but he doesn't eat sweets. And uh, I got there last time and he made me this bowl of peach cobbler and he doesn't eat sweets and he knows that I do. And I'm sitting there like, David, as he keeps scooping vanilla ice cream on there, I'm like, dude, what are you doing, man? Like, and because uh, he has some plot to like get me fatter or something. I don't know what it is. But uh, anyways, that has nothing to do with the story. But my friend David um, started an organization called Mentor Leaders that a lot of you support kids uh, all over the world that he does work with. He does work in several continents. And, um, but his biggest work and his most influential work is in Togo, Africa, which is kind of Central West uh, Africa. And um, he and I have talked a lot. I've been to Africa several times. I go to East Africa, and he, he does a lot of his work kind of in more West Africa. And um, very different culturally. And there, there's a lot of hoops one has to jump through to kind of have um, a voice with the community, to have the opportunity to share the gospel, to get to know people. You have to jump through some cultural hoops. And where he is in Togo, where he does a lot of work, um, he's built several colleges, several schools, Bible colleges. He's created hospitals, and it's, he's basically changed the entire nation of Togo. In fact, the government of Togo goes to him uh, for things like medicine and, and uh, talk on curriculum for schools, and he's done a lot in that nation. And I asked him uh, when he started doing that about 11 years ago, how did you have favor with that community? How did you build that, that gap between you as a believer and them or as non-believers in a, a very undeveloped part of Africa. And he told me, he said, if you want to have favor with the community, with the non-believers there, um, you have to meet with the chief of whatever village you're going into, whatever area you're going into. And you have to basically kind of submit to this chief and, and um, not do anything that goes against your Christian values, but do things that you're not comfortable with and kind of lay down your rights and your obligations and your, uh, your comforts and freedoms in order to kind of gain a, a voice with the community. And he proceeded to tell me how he uh, gained a voice with the, the community in Togo where he is. And he went to this one chief's house, hut, went in there and sat down. And if you've ever been to Africa, if you don't eat what they put in front of you, it's very offensive to them. So um, you can't just be like, oh, I don't like that. You have to eat whatever that is, whatever that may be. I've eaten some interesting things in Africa in order not to offend people. And um, nothing this interesting, though. As David goes in to meet with the chief of this village, they bring out a boiled cat a cat. And they weren't going to eat the, the body of the cat. They were going to crack open the skull and eat the brain of the cat. And that's what my buddy David proceeded to do. Um, didn't like it. In fact, he's a vegetarian. Uh, so not just meat, like the worst meat. So um, he sat down and he uh, cracked open a, a boiled cat skull and ate cat brains, um, laid down his freedoms, laid down his rights. He didn't have to do it, but he decided, um, I'll go to whatever lengths I have to to be able to have a good witness and a good reputation with the non-believers of this community so I can advance the gospel in this community. Um, this is not cat brains. It's a mask. And we don't have to wear it. We don't have to put it on. But I'm gonna tell you, there's a lot of non-believers that look at us. And thankfully, right? God has given this church a lot of influence in this community. And not just this community, a lot of communities around the United States and the world. And I thank God for that. And I feel a heavy weight of the stewardship of how we need to wield that responsibility. And if it means me laying down my comforts and putting on this mask while I'm in this building, guys, this isn't persecution, it's a mask. And we're not doing it because we're bowing down to any governmental authority. In fact, the government said we didn't have to do it. But in order to have a good reputation with those that may be looking at us to lead during this time, this is a very small sacrifice to make, guys. And that's why we're doing that. And I thank you for being in this room. And um, no one, I have not met a person yet that likes wearing these, right? You don't like run into people and are just like, man, this mask is awesome. No one says that. 
it's terrible. I know it's terrible. I'm the guy that can't sleep if a pillow is too close to my face. And it feels like I have a pillow on my face all the time. I don't like it. Um, but if it, if it causes me to have a better stature with non-believers, then I'm gonna make that sacrifice. And I thank you guys for being in this room and making that sacrifice as well. And I know that some people don't wanna make that sacrifice or maybe you don't feel comfortable getting out and you're watching online. And that's fine too. Um, I get it. I have a rebellious streak in me as well. And um, it's not easy for me to do stuff like that. But thank you for tuning in if you're watching online. Thank you so much for being in this room and supporting me during this time. It's been... Uh, it's been something else. So we have been working through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and I wrote this, this lesson, oddly enough, before I, I became the devil on Tuesday and said, people need to wear masks in this building. Um, and so uh, <laughs> there'll be lots of those today. I'm sorry, guys. I'm so tired. Um, but we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, I finished this Monday night, early, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Monday, Tuesday, however you want to uh, look at the hours. It was late and I uh, got done with this. And last week we were in the first half of chapter 16 and we talked about the evolution of a Christian. Now, if you haven't been here, we're at this point in the story of Matthew where Jesus is almost coming to the conclusion of his ministry, which means he is starting to get closer and closer to the cross. Now, he starts introducing this shift in the beginning of chapter 16, and we're going to see the, the, more of it in, in the second half of chapter 16. But in the first half of chapter 16, we start to see the evolution of the disciples. Now, evolution there, for our context, is sanctification, which means the disciples are getting closer to not only understanding what Jesus wants from them, but living those things out, okay? They're growing closer and closer to Jesus, being like him, acting like him. So we asked ourselves last week, if we look at kind of like this, this scale of, of what the evolution of our walk with Jesus looks like, where are we on that scale? How are we doing? Are we growing closer to God? Are we getting closer to what he wants us to be and how he wants us to live? This week, we're going to talk about this. That in the middle of the temporary, right? In the middle of the chaos and the frustration and the confusion and everything else that is going on right now in the present, it is so important that we do not forget as believers that there is an eternity that God has set aside that is perfect. So in the middle of the very confusing temporal, we cannot forget about the promised perfect eternal. That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. We're going to talk about holding on, okay? So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. If you did not get one of those notes handouts, everything will be on the screens around the room. Um, if you have your smartphone, the Experience Community app. If you download that, click on Service Times and Sermon Notes. Everything should be there. If you're watching at home on YouTube or Facebook or I don't know, whatever the heck else we stream on, uh, the most important points will show up at the bottom of the screen, the things that are kind of highlighted so you can kind of watch and not have to flip back and forth. So that's pretty convenient. And uh, if you have your Bible, we're in the first book of the New Testament. We're in the 16th chapter. We're going to start in the 21st verse. Very short today, guys. I'm going to read, I think, seven or eight verses. It's not going to be long, okay? And, um, and then you can go enjoy the rest of your weekend, okay? Thank you guys for being here. I feel guilty sometimes because when I... It's, it's such a weird thing being up here teaching because you, you, you're teaching and the majority of the people who, who are on the right track are sitting in front of you, <laughs> It's, it's the stuff you get upset about and you get mad about and you shout about and you shake your fist at and, and you guys are the ones who are here. <laughs> so uh, it's hard sometimes. So please don't ever misconstrue my, my passion for, for, for condemnation or, or uh, looking down on anybody. That's not what I'm trying to do. So, all right, let me pray. Be gracious with me today, guys. Father, Lord, I love you. God, I thank you so much for my church, Lord. I thank you so much. God, this is my family. These are my friends. These are my brothers. These are my sisters, Lord. Father, I pray that you just keep your hand on your church today. God, not just the experience, um, every church in this city. God, I pray that you keep your hand on our local government, our state government, our federal government. I pray that you keep your hand on our school board, God, and the tough decisions they're having to make uh, recently, Lord. I pray that you keep your hand on us as individuals, Lord. I pray that we can be the light to non-believers around us, God, that we can be a good example, good stewards, Lord, of the influence you've given us, Jesus. 
God, keep your hand on every word that I say. I pray that everything that comes out of my mouth reflects your heart and that it honors you and that it, that it somehow lift and lifts up and sharpens my brothers and sisters and, and, and maybe people that, that don't believe that are listening for some reason today. God, Father, we love you, Lord, and, and um, it's maybe more clear than it's ever been to me just how desperately I need you to lead me, God. I love you. Thank you. Praise you. Keep your hand on us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's read a little bit. You guys are awfully quiet today. It makes me nervous. Uh, we'll read a little bit. I'll break it down, and I'll do my best to explain it, okay? Here we go. It says, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes to be killed and to be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. So like I said before, I said it last week and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of show it to you here this week. Maybe one of the biggest turning points, not only in Matthew, maybe in the entire Bible is what we just talked about, what we just read. Verse 21, where Jesus is looking at his disciples and look at how direct and how clear he is. There is no ambiguity here. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get arrested. These people are going to beat me and abuse me. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be in the ground. And on the third day, look at how specific he was. And on the third day, I'm going to raise myself from the grave. So he's very specific about what's happening very, very soon. So what we're going to see from chapter 16 on is the seriousness of what Jesus is doing is going to be amplified and the opposition to what Jesus is doing is going to be amplified, okay? The seriousness, the intensity, also the battle that is going to come against Jesus and what he's doing is going to intensify, okay? So if you have any friends that are not Christians, and I hope you do, right? I hope you know people that don't think like you in the hopes that you can introduce them to Jesus. If you have friends that are not believers, a lot of times non-believers have a hard time understanding why Jesus would have to go through the awful things that he went through. If you remember when the Passion of the Christ came out, I was a very new believer at that time. I might have been a Christian for maybe a year at that time. When that movie came out, I had so many of my non-believing friends who went and saw it. And they're like, Corey, it was so horrific. It was awful. Why did those things have to happen? The reason why Jesus had to go through the brutality and the kind of death that he did is humanity. That's us, right? Everyone who has ever existed, everyone who existed in Jesus' time, and everyone who exists now. We have accumulated, right, collectively, this debt against God. What that means is we have done so much evil. We have done so many bad things that there was no way to tip the scale in our favor of goodness without God's help. We could not do a good, enough good deeds to deal with and to alleviate all the evil things that we have done. So God had to send his perfect son to pay the price for the evil that we had committed. This is why Christians do not believe in karma. And if you use that word, that's not a good word, you just, you, word to use. That is Eastern philosophy. That is not Christian philosophy. We believe in reaping what you sow, which is a completely different thing than karma. When it comes to karma, karma is when we accumulate all this bad in, in, in Eastern uh, philosophy. We accumulate all this bad and we have to do all this good to outbalance that. It's impossible, right? Some of us in this room are like, amen, we have done so much evil that we need help. And what grace does is it takes care, it forgives, it removes the debt of all the evil we've done, not because of how good we are, but because of how good God is, right? That's why we don't believe in karma. There's no way we can tip that scale in our favor. God has to do it for us. And so Peter hears of the crucifixion. I love this. Peter pulls Jesus, God in the flesh, aside and says, I'll protect you. This isn't going to happen to you, right? It's kind of humorous. And because of the disciples' limited understanding of Jesus' mission, 
they were only focusing on the suffering, not the results of what the resurrection would do. They were looking at the suffering, not the salvation. And so Peter, being the impulsive guy that he is, and he feels blindsided, feels like he's been caught off guard, he pulls Jesus aside and says, Lord, we're not going to let this happen to you. We're going to find out a little bit later that was kind of a selfish thing, but we'll, we'll talk about that here in a minute. Here's something we learned from Peter. This is very, very important. Though Peter was wrong, right? He pulled Jesus aside and kind of rebuked him. Something we learn in this is just because we are angry doesn't mean that we are necessarily sinful. We can be angry and still be Christ-like. Anger is not an evil thing. It's how we act in that anger that can be an evil thing. Jesus gets angry, right? We read several accounts in the Bible. He's over in the corner fashioning a whip, right? Everyone's like, what's Jesus doing? He's like, I'm about to show you what I'm doing. He's in the corner making a whip. Jesus gets mad sometimes. Anger is not a sin. It's what we do in that anger that can be a sin. We also learn that respect is a Christian virtue. Well, Corey, I'll respect them when they respect me. It's not the way it works as a Christian. We respect all people made in the image of God, right? Everyone, regardless if they disagree with us, regardless if they're living incorrectly, we respect them to the level that they are a human made in God's image. The third thing that we kind of learn from Peter is we can even be upset with God. God knows you get upset with him, right? He's not oblivious to that. It's how we act when we're upset with God. I can't tell you how many times I'm like, God, I don't get it. Come on, what, what, what's the deal? But I'm still respectful. I still know that he is Lord. I still know that he is the boss, just like Peter did. Peter said, Lord. So he was upset, but he was still respectful in that, in that anger. But Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, Jesus was not literally calling Peter the devil. Jesus was saying, Peter, you're acting like the devil. Your response is contrary to what I'm supposed to do. Therefore, it's not a good response. It's an evil response. Jesus was letting Peter know that the devil was using Peter by trying to get Jesus off course, by tempting him to not go through with the cross. Now, that's important. It's important because we learn in the beginning of chapter 16 that Peter is the rock, right? He's the foundation by which Christianity was built, right? He was a good man, did some dumb things, but he was a good man. He was the rock. We also find out that sometimes the rock can be a stumbling block, which is wrong. What that means for us in practical terms is even if we are not the one that has committed the sin, if we tempt others to sin, we are wrong. What does that mean in practical terms? Listen, there's nothing wrong with you having a, a, a beer with your pizza if you're over 21, right? Nothing wrong with you having a glass of wine with your wife while you're on a date. Now, if you're sitting there sipping that Newcastle and your buddy next to you just beat alcoholism, you're wrong. That's wrong. You're being a stumbling block to this person that has struggled with alcoholism. That's wrong. When you, here's, here's where no one likes me. But when you get online and you guys take those pictures of yourselves, right? Why is it always from this angle? What does this angle do? Everyone knows what it does, right? When you take those pictures and you post them on social media, do you ask, why am I doing this? What's the point of this, right? Is it to glorify God? Is it to show everyone what's behind you? Because it, all I can see is not what's behind you. Do you know if you take those pictures and it makes a young man stumble, that means you're doing something wrong? Guys, it's a, we're not exempt from this either. I don't know if you know this. Women lust sometimes too. You know, if we take these pictures and we say these things and we do these things, we're not acting like Christ. So I'm just gonna ask you, next time you do this, right? Ask yourself, why am I doing this? Who does this glorify? Is this good? Does this say I love Jesus, right? Makes some things look bigger, other things look smaller. Everyone's deleting those pictures right now. Or unfriending me. That seems to be the trend now. Unfriend Corey. Bloop. Block him. Bloop. So now we get to the root of what made Peter's response evil. Jesus makes it very, very clear. He says, Peter, you're not thinking about me. You're thinking about you. He was more concerned about his own safety than he was about what was happening to Jesus. And that brings us to this. You know there's not droves of young people right now worshiping like Krishna or Brahma or Vishnu 
They're not reading the works of the Dalai Lama or studying Allah. You know, there's not a massive amount of young people moving to that. The God of our era is self. It's us. That's the God of our era. And so let me tell you something about the, the God of self. If you ever, and, and I've talked about this stuff before, and you guys probably think it's like really weird that I know this kind of stuff, but if you go back to the 19th century, there was a, a happy fellow named Aleister Crowley. He was an occultist, right? He's actually a pretty terrible guy, called the most evil man on planet Earth in his day. Aleister Crowley wrote what's called the Law of Philema, right? So there's, there's, there's actually an Ozzy Osbourne song called Mr. Crowley about, anyways, you can go all onto that tunnel, so Aleister Crowley wrote what's called the Law of Thelema, and the Law of Thelema is a very simple statement and encapsulates America right now. It says, do as thou wilt is the whole of the law. It means do what you want to do. That's the only law that's important. Individualism, right? Aleister Crowley wrote that. Another happy fellow named Anton LaVey in the 1960s from San Francisco got a hold of Aleister Crowley's teachings, took that line of thought about individualism, and he wrote a book called The Satanic Bible. And when you open The Satanic Bible, the first line in The Satanic Bible is a quote by Aleister Crowley. There's the law of the Philema called, do as thou wilt, right? It's the whole of the law. And that has become our mantra, right? That has become, do you know most Satanists don't believe in the devil? I don't know if you know that or not. I've been in the Satanic Temple in Salem, Massachusetts. If you ask the curator, do you worship the devil? He goes, no, 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 we worship ourselves. And I say, how American is that, right? Because when we worship ourselves, there is nothing more anti-Christ. Look at what the devil said in Genesis chapter three. The serpent didn't say, hey, Eve, would you worship me? No, no, no. If you eat that, you'll be a God. You'll be God. And it is still the mantra that we chant over and over and over again in the United States. It is the God of this era is self. And the pursuit of self is anti-Christ. Go back to Genesis chapter three and you'll see it. It is never in line with God's mission. Another thing that Jesus wanted to tell his followers is easy doesn't equal better. Jesus wanted his followers to know that humans always tend to drift down the path of ease. But salvation doesn't come from ease. Good marriages don't come from ease. Raising good children is not easy. Being educated is not easy. Making a good income is not easy, right? It is work and it is suffering that yields the greatest rewards, not only in this life, but in the life to come. There's nothing wrong with working smart. There's nothing wrong with finding a sustainable pace. I would tell you that the Bible teaches that. But anything of value in this life and in the life to come comes by blood and sweat. Your salvation came by blood and sweat. Anything that is of any value comes through a cost. And Jesus is about to lay that cost out. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Look at that. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for their life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will reward each according to what he has done Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So up to this point, the sacrifice of the followers of Jesus had been pretty minimal. Maybe they had to walk long distances. Maybe they had to go a couple of days without eating food. Um, maybe a couple of people unfriended them from Facebook or spit on them or talked bad about them. There was kind of these minimal sacrifices that the disciples had to make during that time. They didn't have Facebook back then. It was MySpace and Jesus's time. So up to this point, the sacrifices had been pretty minimal. But now the hard times were coming. Jesus was telling them there is going to be suffering and I'm going to suffer, and if you follow me, you're going to suffer too. So Jesus makes it clear. Following Jesus means first choosing his path over our path. It means the exact opposite of what we talked about in the last section, not following self, but denying self, right? Saying no to what we want and picking up what God wants. 
So Jesus says, you got to take up a cross. <laughs> it's so interesting to me. You have these prosperity gospel preachers, right? That it's all about getting rich. It's all about being popular. It's all about your best life. Now you can fill in the blanks as to who that is. You know, the Bible never says, follow me and pick up your Porsche. The Bible says, follow me and pick up a cross. Pick up something that's going to be heavy. Pick up something that's going to bring suffering. Picking up our cross means being led by Jesus every single day. It means commitment to being trained by him, led by him, living as close as we can to him through the struggles, through the frustrations, through all the hard times. This means that Christianity is more than just feel-good worship services. It's more than even just getting together with your small group. Both of those things are good. But Christianity is a day-to-day -day walk. It's walking with him on Tuesday. It's walking with him on Thursday. It's walking with him when the sky falls. It's walking with him when the economy tanks. It's walking with him all the time. It is a day-to-day. -day. It is a lifestyle. It's not just the good things. It's the hard things too. It's the difficult things too. That's the cross. And Jesus says, whoever chooses to pick up that cross, whoever loses their life for my sake, finds it. They find it what living really is. And this simple phrase, this is a collision to everything you guys are taught all the time from everywhere. We are sold this lie of individualism, that it's all about you. It's all about your liberty, liberties, your rights, your freedoms, your comforts. It's all about you. It's all about your pursuit of happiness. Now listen, I love the Constitution. It's a brilliant piece of literature but the pursuit of happiness is not in this book. We've confused the two. We don't pursue happiness. This says pursue Jesus, not pursue you, not pursue what you want, not pursue what you can gain, pursue Christ. It's not because Jesus doesn't want us to be content. It's that Jesus knows the only pathway to true contentment is him. It's not our pursuit of happiness. It's the pursuit of Jesus Christ. It is the pursuit of him that brings us contentment, fulfillment, purpose. That's how we find what we're supposed to be. That's how we find what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live. And it's a lifelong endeavor, laying down ourselves, choosing to carry a cross. It's not just a weekend thing. It's not just a when I'm broken, need help thing. We've been sold another lie besides individualism. We have been sold the lie that we can compartmentalize our faith. I can get drunk and have sex with this girl on Saturday as long as I'm in church on Sunday morning, right? I can say all these racist jokes and treat people like garbage in the office, but when I get to my small group, I gotta clean up and say the right things. I can look at porn when my wife's on vacation, but as long as I take her uh, on dates and things like that, it's okay. I'm not hurting anyone. And we think we can compartmentalize our lives. And that's a lie. And that's why marriages are falling apart. And that's why families are breaking apart. And that's why churches don't teach good theology. And that's why so many things in our society are messing up. Because we can think we can periodically put our beliefs on the shelf. Well, I'm with my girls in Panama City. Like Jesus turns a blind eye when you're there, right? And this is why we don't have the relationships that we're supposed to have. This is why we don't have the fulfillment and peace that we are promised by God. This is why we don't have the families and the marriage. This is why things are so messed up. Because we think that our faith is like this 25% thing or this 75% thing or 99% thing. No, no, it's everything. We're either Christians all the time or we're not Christians. And that's what this Bible teaches. And that takes endurance the Bible, does not, it, the Bible does not bait and switch you. <laughs> a bunch of charlatan pastors that are really actors, they bait and switch you, but the Bible doesn't bait and switch you. The Bible is very, very blunt. In this life, you're going to suffer. It's going to be hard. The Bible calls our faith a marathon. You ever like to ask anyone who runs marathons, hey, what's mile 20 like? And it's awesome. It's so good, right? You want to throw up blood and you see stuff that's not there. It's so good. No, it sucks. It's hard. You have to train for it. The Bible says our faith is like a fight. It's a series of trials and temptations and tests. It is tough. 
That's why you have to train for it. And our endurance comes from church. It comes from reading the word of God. It comes from prayer. It comes from community. It comes from resting and meditating and thinking on the Lord. You have to train. Because if you don't train and you get in the ring with the devil, you're gonna get beat up pretty bad. You have to train. You have to have that endurance. Jesus also says something interesting. He says, what does it benefit us to gain the entire world and lose our life? Some of your translations say lose your soul, right? What benefit does it do for us? And I'm not trying to judge Jeff Bezos. I don't know his relationship with the Lord. Guy has $175 billion or something crazy like that. What would it hurt him to give me a million of that? Nothing, right? He wouldn't even notice it. So this guy has so much money. But, but listen, and again, he may, have a, he may have a relationship with the Lord. I don't know. But what does it gain? The richest man that has ever lived on planet Earth. What does it gain a man like that to have all that but not have an eternity? Even Jeff Bezos, as rich and as intelligent as he is, he's gonna die. All rich and, and influential people have died in the past. So that brings up an interesting question. Jesus says, what does it matter if you gain everything and you're still gonna die? Then what? It means that we have to address statements like everyone's gonna die and we can't take our material successes with us. So, so what is of value? What are we going to take with us? And where are we going to go after this life? Those are good questions. What happens after this existence? And so living for Jesus is, is yes, it's very difficult at times, but it's also very fulfilling. It gives us purpose. It helps lead others into a life of purpose. So every, every single Monday... <laughs> Me, Dave, uh, Josh Brooker, and Josh Jamerson, we go get lunch. That's, that's our four pastors of our four campuses. And if we cannot figure out where to go, our default is Slim Chickens. Because um, we're just fancy like that, right? I go the extra mile and I get the little mushrooms that are fried. So, because I'm fancy like that. So we go to Slim Chickens. And um, a couple of Mondays ago, we're sitting there and they got TVs everywhere because no one likes to talk to each other anymore. Um, and so, so they got TVs everywhere, these big old TVs. I'm looking at one because Brooker's talking and I, I didn't want to listen to him. And um, I'm sitting there watching the, the TV. And there's some guy, I didn't know what I was watching because the sound was off. And this guy had on a really, really nice suit and he was really, really, you know, like really well manicured beard and nice hair. And he's passionately doing something. He's talking, and he's doing this with his hands and he's pointing and he's, he's saying this and it flashes over to another guy that looks really, really, you know, like well-dressed and sharp beard. And he's talking and he's, and they're arguing and they're going back and forth. And I'm like, wow, was there like a train wreck in Budapest or did something happen with the government? Are they talking about COVID? Are they talking about Black Lives Matter? What are they talking about? They're so passionate. They were arguing if Cam Newton could work with the linebackers of the, of the Patriots. <laughs> and I sat back and I said, this is dumb to get so upset, right? Listen, nothing against sports. I was really happy to see the Cardinals beat the Pirates the other day. Like it's nice to watch baseball. Nothing against it. I'm a, I'm a Patriots fan. So anyway, so like nothing against that. But man, that's your purpose? That's your livelihood? That's, that's what gets you doing this to some guy over Zoom, right? Linebackers and Cam Newton. It's a game. And I sat back and I said, this is how shallow mankind has become. That our purpose is found in a game. That our purpose is found in such shallow things. You know, you know one of my favorite things that's been throughout this whole COVID thing, there hasn't been many good things, but one of the good things that I've liked is that we have discovered we can live without sports. Dads are like, oh, wow, I have kids. I should probably hang out with them, right? Oh, I have a wife. I should take her out. No wonder she hated me. And we actually start doing things with each other again. I found it beautiful that I got on Amazon and they were out of trampolines and bikes. And I'm like, oh my God, people are outside. It's crazy. It's fascinating that we've actually learned some healthy things throughout this time. So listen, Jesus assures us he is coming back. And if our life's purpose was to argue about the starting lineup for the, for, for the Patriots, that's crazy. Jesus assures us he's coming back. And for those who are faithful to him, the rewards we receive from God are going to outweigh anything we've dealt with in this life. 
any bad things we have dealt with in this life. The rewards are going to be greater. Jesus also assures us. He says, I will reward each of you according to what you've done. This leads us to believe that, that heaven will not be exactly the same for everyone, neither will hell. I'm not trying to talk about levels like Dante's Inferno or anything like that, but there are different degrees of our rewards in heaven. I'll probably be mowing some of your yards up there. And then there's different degrees of punishment in hell. Why? Because God sees the heart. Jesus is the righteous, perfect judge honors the good things you've done, regardless if any humans have seen it or not. They're going to see it one day in heaven. He honors the good things we've done, and he's going to hold accountable the evil that we've done, even if we've hid that from everyone on earth. And so then Jesus says something in verse 28, and it's usually taken way out of context. And that's going to be my point here in a second. As Jesus says, there are some of you sitting right here, he's talking to his disciples, who will not die before they see me coming in the glory of my Father. Now, there are a lot of atheists that read that, and I'm not trying to be combative or a jerk, but they read that and they say, look, Jesus was just a cult leader. All of these guys died and Jesus has not come back. Well, that's not what that's talking about. If you read into verse 17, it explains exactly what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't talking about his second coming. He was talking about his transfiguration, which I will get into next week when we talk about that. But here's why I wanted to bring that up. Anyone can go to the scripture and pick out a verse and make it say whatever they want it to say. They can twist it and turn it and manipulate it. That's how bad theology gets birthed. But if we read the scripture in context, if we read what, becomes, uh, what comes before and what comes after, if we know a little bit about the setting, if we know a little bit about the audience, we can do it in proper perspective, which means we need to research. We need to, to apply it correctly. We need to do a little bit of study. Paul even tells Timothy, rightly divide the word of truth, right? Put a little bit of effort and time into it, and that'll keep you away from bad theology, okay? Just a side note for all of us in here. Read a little bit more. Study a little bit more about it. Make sure your theology is on point, okay? So what we learn in the second half of chapter 16, or maybe it's just what I learned, is that our faith is not easy. There are very difficult truths about Christianity. And I guess the overarching hard truth about Christianity is walking with Jesus is tough. There's a lot of opposition. So what we learn in this, this lesson today is anything virtuous is met with opposition. Your relationship with God will be met with opposition from hell. I bet if I were to ask you in this room, I won't make you do this. If you had spiritual battles, right, after you got baptized, I bet almost all of you would say, yep. You were more sensitive to that because once you dedicated your life to Christ through baptism, you could start to feel that pressure, right? You're now a target. And now there's that opposition because you're pursuing something virtuous, a relationship with the Lord. A good marriage comes with opposition. It's not easy to have a good marriage. It's not easy to raise good children. It's not easy to get a PhD. It's not easy to, to have a good relationship with your family. It's not easy to change school systems and change governments and change economical systems. It's not easy to do those things. Anything virtuous is met with opposition. And not just the good things of this life, the promise of the next life is met with opposition. So we have to have endurance. We have to be committed. And if we're to be true followers of Jesus, not just in name only, but if we're to be true followers of Jesus, we're going to have to be honest and face some difficult truths about becoming a follower of Jesus. And that difficult truth is this, it is picking up a cross. And that's not easy. It's a burden. Now, of course, we have help with that burden, right? Jesus himself. But there is a weight that we carry, a responsibility that we carry. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. But we have to talk about some things we don't like to say. We don't like to say things like submit. <laughs> I'm so sick of Christians right now saying, well, I have the right to. Let me tell you. Jesus Christ was the creator of humanity, the world, and the universe. 
And Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, the Bible says all things were created through him. Jesus Christ, the son of God, gave up his rights as the God of the universe to come to earth, to give himself, to willingly be nailed to a, bu- to a cross for a bunch of non-believers that spat on him. Let's talk about giving up rights for a second. Let's talk about discomfort for a second. Let's talk about persecution. And ladies and gentlemen, if you think wearing this is persecution, you're in for a really hard awakening one day. Let's talk about rights. Let's talk about the son of God that gave up his divinity for a time to become a man and to be spat upon by his own creation. Let's talk about submission. We hate to say that word because we've been fed this individualism We have a culture of it where we don't want to lay down our our ideals. We don't want to lay down our dreams. We don't want to lay down our principles. But Jesus flies in the face of that and says, you have to lose yourself in order to find me, in order to find out who you are. You have to submit. Let's talk a little bit about the government. If you've been coming to this church for any length of time, you know how I feel about politics and the government. If you've been coming to this church for any length of time, you know that I didn't vote for the last two presidents. I'll say that. I didn't vote for the people that lost either. Just so that's clear. But let me tell you a little bit about government. All these people are like, man, our oppressive evil government. Now, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of evil in Washington, D.C. Been there way too deep into that stuff, and I don't ever want to go back to it. I've seen it. But let me tell you about evil governments. If you get into your Bible tonight and you look up Romans chapter 13, Paul wrote that about the Roman government. He said, submit to the governing authorities because all of those people are in authority because God had allowed them to be there. You know why Donald Trump's your president? Because God allowed him to be. You know why Barack Obama was your president? Because God allowed him to be. You know why Nero Caesar was in power? Because God allowed him to be. Because God's sovereign And God has a plan. And the same government that we talk about being so evil, if you go back to Romans chapter 13, let me tell you a little bit about the Roman government. That they had senators that would bring prepubescent boys to their house, rape them over and over again, and then kick them off cliffs when they were done with them. And it was sanctioned by the government. Tell me about an oppressive government. Tell me about an evil government. And Paul said, submit to the same government that eventually took his head. I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not submitting to anybody. Things we hate to say as Christians, don't we? To submit. We hate to say things like sacrifice. I'm so tired of Christians saying self-care. Do you know what that translates to? Nine times out of 10, selfish. Corey, I've worked 28 hours this week. That nurse next door to you did it in the last two days. Tell me about sacrifice. The problem is, is we fail to see that the sacrifice we, we make now yields a reward so great that we can't even comprehend it. Sacrifice helps us. Listen, that helps us identify to Jesus. Whenever we lay ourselves down, we are closer to God because his son did that. He submitted. He sacrificed. We hate to say things like endurance and consistency because we have become a people that anytime someone says something we don't like, we just jump ship. We are out. I can't tell you how many dozens of people in the last couple of weeks have have gotten a hold of me and told me they'll never be back to this church. Corey, you don't believe in God. You don't have faith. You don't care about me people that I've baptized their children, people that I've visited in the hospital, people that I've paid their bills for them when they couldn't pay their own bills, people who have sat under my teaching and been at this church and had us reach out to them and do everything within our power for years and years and years. And the first time I say something that they don't like, like, please support me in wearing a mask, we're out. Because we don't like consistency. We lack endurance, but it is faithfulness. It is faithfulness, not only to Christ, but to the mission, to each other, to the church. We have to have this. We don't like to speak of things like suffering. 
Even though Jesus looked directly at his followers and he says, in this life there will be suffering. But it's the second part we forget. Jesus says, take heart. I've overcome this life. I've overcome this world. And we forget this part. Listen, life is brutal. This is a hard truth about the Christian faith. There is a brutality set aside for Christianity that has never existed against any other religion besides ours. Ever since day one of the birth of the Christian church, there has been persecution against us, and there always will be until Jesus Christ comes back. There is a certain and unique brutality set aside just for us. But here's the good thing. Is it tough? Man, it's tough. Does it hurt? Yeah, it hurts. But there is a life after this one. And if we are faithful to Christ, if we are faithful to the word of God, listen, you don't just get to go to heaven. Do you know that the Bible says you inherit it? The Bible says you become co-heirs with Christ. Let me tell you what that means. We don't just go to heaven and God's like, all right, this is, all, this is mine, right? It's my dominion. Run around, but it's mine. When we go to heaven, Jesus Christ says, I built this for you and it's yours. It's yours. Have fun. The gates of the city are open. Go explore a new earth. Go explore a new universe. Explore the city. It's yours. We're co-heirs with Christ. He built us a place. Jesus looked at his followers and he said, I have prepared for you a place in my father's house and there are many rooms, many mansions. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you this. That we get to inherit the kingdom of God. It becomes ours. He gives it to us to be co-heirs with Christ for eternity if we are faithful. Our problem, though, is in the middle of the garbage. Man, some of you got to be with me in this. In the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the distractions, in the middle of the hurt and the division, in the middle of this, we forget that there is a perfect future. We forget that if we will just hold on, God has something better. He says, I'm going to come back. I'm going to reward you for the things that you've done. You're going to be with me. And it's going to be perfect. But the problem is, is in the middle of the temporal, we forget the future. The Bible says we are just immigrants passing through. Migrants this is not our home. This is not where we're meant to be forever. The reason it's broken is because it's not where we're meant to stay. I might have wrote this lesson just for me. I don't, I don't, I don't know. And I'm not trying to make you have empathy for me. Everything I've done for the last 11 years has been my choice, my choice. Given up 51, or this year it'll be 52 weekends away from my family. It's my choice. No one made me do that. I did it. The salaries I've taken, I made those decisions. All the things that my staff does to volunteer and, and serve and, and be there all the time, that's, that's our decisions. We make those decisions. But I'm going to be real honest with you guys. I laid there last night in my wife, with my wife in my bed. And I ball in my house. I was saying, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And it's brutal, not just for pastors, man. Any of us who are trying to be virtuous right now, all hell is against you. And isn't it ironic that we catch so much hell from people who claim to be following the same Christ? Isn't that crazy? I get more hell from people who claim to be Christians than I ever get from non-believers. 10 times more, 20 times more. Every bad review I've ever gotten on Google is not from a non-believer. It's from someone who claims to follow Jesus. Every time someone sends me something hateful, calls me faithless and weak and lame, Maybe it's just for me, but maybe someone else needs to hear it too. You got to hold on. 
God has never let me down yet. God has never failed me. He's never failed this church. Do I know what the future looks like? I don't. But I know what eternity will look like. And if we can just hold on, if we can weather this storm, guys, that means we have to lean on him. You have to be desperate. You may have to lay face first in the carpet and say, God, I am so weak. But the Bible assures us that when we're at our weakest, that's when he shows up the strongest in our lives. This is a great time for us to lose ourselves. Because I think if anything that's been made clear in the last five, six months is humanity is insufficient. We are insufficient. There is only one capable of, of carrying this. And it's not me. It's not you. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you're in this room right now and, and maybe you're struggling, maybe you have questions of faith, maybe, maybe you just feel like you're on the edge right now. If you come up here to my right, your left, Pastor Isaac is up here. He'd love to talk with you. Not to put him on the spot if you, if you don't think Isaac has ever been on the edge, if you don't think he's ever been in a place to where he's struggled, if he feels comfortable, maybe you can ask him to share his story with you. If you have any questions, though, please talk to him. There's men and women on both sides of the stage if you need prayer for anything, anything at all. And then the last thing is you should have communion in your hands. <laughs> that communion represents a lot. It represents the God of the universe that gave up his rights, gave up his freedom to go through the most uncomfortable and grotesque death to liberate a bunch of non-believers like us. Of course, you're, you're completely fine to take off your mask while you take communion. The only thing with that is you have to Remember to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins before you take that. Because the Bible says you take it under condemnation if you don't ask God's forgiveness before you take the body and blood. As you take that, though, remember, we have a wonderful, perfect Savior that has given up much for us in the hopes that people that didn't know him would know him. Hold on. You have a Savior that loves you a lot. Father, I love you, God. Father, forgive me for ever doubting that you're there. Forgive me, Lord, for ever questioning if you're looking at me, God, or recognizing the struggles that I have. God, keep your hand on my brothers and sisters, Lord. So many of us are tired, God. We're confused, we're frustrated, we're angry. God, just help us, Lord, in the middle of all that chaos, in the middle of what will pass, Lord. Father, keep our eyes focused on you. Eternity, Lord. God, protect the families in here, the marriages in here. Keep your hand on the single people, God. Keep your hand on, on everyone who can hear me right now, everyone that's watching online, Lord. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, and... Um, we just lay our life at your feet. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you guys so much.